everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. So it's been a minute since I've done an episode like this where I've done a book review. Um, obviously, the book that I am reviewing today is The Case for Nationalism by Rich Lowry. And I wanted to read this book and do this review because if you remember back to the interview I did with Stephanie Slade on her cover piece from a couple months back discussing the new nationalism, um, I had mentioned that I would probably end up reading the book just for the sake of saying that I did it and to kind of give Lowry a fair shake as far as kind of critiquing his work. So I did that. And just in general, a lot of times when I do these reviews, I am typically reading things that I know I'm not going to agree with, but I do think there is value in exposing yourself to viewpoints and to ideas that don't necessarily align with your own, but in the fairness of trying to give other people a fair shake and to at least understand other people's arguments and other people's point of views so that you can better refute them if you do end up deciding you wanted to refute them or if you do find them to have some kind of merit or something that you want to think about. There's that too. So always a good idea that if you have time, I mean, obviously things are very crazy right now, but I do always suggest exposing yourself to viewpoints that don't necessarily align with your own just for the sake of being more intellectually well-rounded and having a better idea of how the other half thinks and being able to create arguments that best refute those sorts of ideas. So that is why I read this book in the first place. Obviously, I knew going into this, I mean, I've done a couple of episodes on this already on this kind of new nationalist movement. I've critiqued a couple of pieces. I just did Vermeule's piece um, last year when Against the Dead Consensus kind of blew up. I did an episode on that one. So this is something I've been kind of paying attention to now for, gosh, it's probably been a year now since Against the Dead Consensus came out, or at least we're coming up on a year-ish. Maybe we might be a little past it. Time ceases to have meaning anymore. But I've my my question on it has always been that I don't understand what the point of the movement is. I don't understand where it's going or what it's trying to do or what its policy aims are. And this is kind of the way I think. I'm not somebody who can come up with a litany of complaints about anything without sitting down and trying to come up with solutions to them. That's just the way my brain works. So I think that's why I've been very confused about a lot of the concepts that nationalism is putting forth now and kind of side-eyeing the whole movement in general, because I'm just, I'm not, I don't, I don't understand. I don't, I, what, what do you want? What are we, what are you wanting to do? I'm, I'm very confused by it. So again, That's another reason to try to expose yourself to different points of view, because I thought, okay, maybe if I read this book, then maybe I will better understand what the policy aims are, what the cultural aims are, what what is this movement trying to accomplish? Because I've been very confused and just not understanding much beyond they seem to have problems with immigration and they don't much care for porn or drag queens or David French. Outside of that, I'm, I don't, I don't know. So, I read the book, obviously. Um, yeah, I'm gonna just kind of go through this because I do have a lot to say about the contents of the book. Um, I will give Rich Lowry a round of applause for making it all the way to page four before invoking libertarians in the globe-trotting elite. All the way to page four. Good job, Rich. I am surprised you held yourself back that much. But that kind of gives you an idea of where this is going and kind of stop me if you think that you've heard this one before. But moving kind of more into the book, um, we kind of start with talking about Trump. And Lowry said that this is not a book about Trump, and it's really not. But you can't discuss the nationalist movement without discussing Trump, because he is kind of, as it stands, the figurehead of the movement. Which brings me to my first problem with this. You don't get to cherry pick on this one. And it seems like, especially in this book, Lowry 
does this and kind of the movement in general does this where you want to to pick and choose the parts of people or the parts of ideas that you like and then try to distance yourself from the more unseemly parts of that person or that idea. And it's kind of, you don't get to have your cake and eat it too. You can't say that, oh, I I like Trump's populism, but I don't like the way he expresses it. Well, those two things kind of go together. Like you can't say that, oh, I like Trump, but I hate the way he acts on Twitter. Well, that's pretty much his whole damn presidency. So what exactly is it that you do like? And this is the part where Lowry very famously says that Victor Orban, Victor Orban, people, Victor fucking Orban is just a Democrat with rough edges, which is a take that never should have been published anywhere at any time. But oh, my God, has that not aged well at all? Basically, Viktor Orban now has complete authoritarian power. Yeah, meh. not exactly a Democrat with rough edges and actually ends up being an example of the kind of thing that those of us who warn against nationalism have tried to warn nationalists against and that Lowry seems to think can be contained, which is this idea that, oh, you could just kind of stop it before things get out of control. And it's like, Nah, not so much, dude. But moving on from that, <laughs> this was this this book took me a long time to read because I kind of had to read it in stages. And it's not that it's a hard book to read, not a long book, and the chapters are broken up well. But it's just like, what, what, what are you, what? Anyway, the next big, big, big problem I have with this book and. What seems to be an idea in nationalism in general is this idea that America is a nation, not an idea. Okay. If your view of America is that it is a landmass with borders and there's people that live in it, okay, that is such a small, sad view of what this country is. Yes, America is an idea. It is very much an idea. And the the examples that he cites to prove that it is a country, not an idea, are examples of people using the American flag in very iconic ways, like Iwo Jima and 9-11, and kind of how the whole story of old glory came to be. And if that doesn't illustrate to you that America is an idea, and that the reason why these uses are as iconic as they are is because America is more than just a country. It stands for a set of ideals. There's a set of principles. There's a there's a very specific idea of what America is, and especially to people who are not Americans, especially people who are trying to move to America. Like they're not trying to move to America because like, oh, well, that landmass is better than my landmass. And hey, the weather's nicer there. And eh, I don't know, I I like mountains and there's no mountains where I live or I like forests or I like big cities. And that's why I'm going to go live there. No, they're moving here. They want to live here because of the idea that America is and what it stands for. Like the, the American dream exists for a reason. There's There's a reason why Reagan invoked the shining city on the hill. Like it's it's not just a country. Like selling America as just a country is you're not you're missing the point. You're missing the entire point of why this country is what it is and why people view it the way they view it and why people want to move here. And just I don't I don't know how you do nationalism without understanding the idea that America is an idea. Like what what are you what are you swearing fealty to then? A piece of land? That doesn't make any damn sense. Like, that's stupid. Like, the whole idea of nationalism is stupid without embracing the idea that America is an idea. Like, that doesn't even make any sense when you think about it. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I just, I don't, there's so much of this I don't understand. And it's, I don't, I don't, I just don't. So, <laughs> moving on, um, 
Lowry asserts that there is no functional difference between nationalism and patriotism, which is fundamentally incorrect. And I do actually discuss this in my interview with Stephanie, but obviously the two words exist because there's two different concepts. If there weren't two different concepts, then it would just be one word. Patriotism implies something that is a lot more a lot more surface than nationalism. Like nationalism would be like patriotism on steroids. Nationalism establishes an idea that you owe the country something and that you owe the other citizens of the country something due to the fact that you all were born on this particular plot of land within the magic invisible lines. And so therefore, there's an inherent relationship there between you and the nation and the citizens that patriotism does not require. Like patriotism just means you you like your country. And I think most people that live in America like America. Like, okay, America, cool, great country. Don't live anywhere else, not trying to move anywhere else. Don't really want to move anywhere else because I like it here. Nationalism is a little deeper than that. In fact, nationalism is a lot deeper than that. In fact, if you look at the ways nationalism has been practiced, when it has been practiced, it's a lot deeper than that. So again, this idea of just trying to pass off nationalism as nothing more than just patriotism, I'm like, no, no, that's that's a lie. That's some subterfuge there. And it's one of those things that makes me side eye what it is this movement's about. Because if you're going to say something like that, like, well, then why wouldn't you just call yourself a patriot and not a nationalist? Like, why why are you using word A instead of word B? Clearly, you must have a reason for doing so. It's because you think that word A describes you better than word B. So asserting that word A and word B mean the same thing, again, does not make any sense in this context. Like, it, it doesn't make sense. Moving on from that, Lowry asserts and, I guess, assumes that all Americans share some sort of cultural fabric and shared ideals in history. To which, again, I give my standard ask here, can somebody make a list of these things that all Americans have as far as cultural touchstones or shared ideals or or histories? Can somebody please make, make me like a list of 10 things? Go for it. 10. Name 10 things that every single American agrees on. They don't exist. I don't understand what this concept is of American culture that the nationalists seem so concerned about saving. I mean, I understand regional cultures. I understand ethnic cultures. I don't I don't understand what this massive overarching American culture that these people seem to think exists. Because even if you want to go to the idea of a shared history, I mean, you can make a timeline and say that, okay, these things happened at this specific date and time, and we can all agree that that happened. That does not mean that your experience with it or your family's experience with it is the same for every single American, like depending on your race, depending on when your family came to America, depending on your gender, depending on your socioeconomic status, your history and your family's history is going to be vastly different from somebody else's. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that's just something that's going to happen when you have a country this big and have this many people, you're not going to have one shared history that everybody agrees on because like I said, it was different for everybody. If your family came over here on a slave ship, your experience of American history is going to be a lot different than if you can trace your ancestors back to the Mayflower. Like, that just is what it is. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong with not acknowledging that. We're trying to say that we need to all pick a specific set of cultural values and ideas and history that we all have to agree on. Because that tends to lead you to some very ugly, icky places too. I just, I don't, I know I say I don't understand this a lot, but I just, I don't, I'm confused about where these ideas are coming from. And I'm trying my best 
to engage this in good faith and not make certain assumptions. But at some point, it starts to become a little difficult for me when somebody asserts that there is some sort of shared American culture to not look at who's saying it and be like, ah, I see why you think that. (laughs) And a lot of this is coming from white men of a certain background. And for them, I'm sure there is some kind of shared cultural identity and background and history. It ain't that way for everybody. Nor should it be, nor could it be. So I'm just, I don't, and I, I'm still, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this because Lowry kind of talks a little bit about it at the end of the book, but I've still not seen anybody define for me what the fuck is American culture. Can somebody please define it for me so I can understand what these people are talking about? Anyway, let's keep going because we still have a lot of ground to cover. Um, Lowry hand waves away a lot of what happened in Europe in the 20th century in relationship to nationalism when it was applied in various places in Europe. Um, yeah, I, I can't quite forget World War I and World War II. I certainly can't hand wave that away. But the arguments that Lowry makes here have shades of the arguments that socialists make in that, well, if we do it this time, it's not going to end up like those other times. Like things went wrong the other times because certain people got control of things and things got out of control And, you know, if we do it, we're going to do it better and we'll stop this from happening and it won't get like it was last time. And it's like, okay, I will make the same argument to nationalists that I make to socialists every time they make that argument, which is to say, if every time your preferred experiment is tried, it ends in a certain way every damn time, maybe the problem is not the personnel It's the ideology. Like if every time you do nationalism, you end up with a Hitler or you end up with a Mussolini, or even if you want to bring it more to like modern times, you end up with an Erdogan, you end up with an Orban, you end up with a Modi. Maybe the problem is not necessarily the people. It's that your ideology leads to this end every freaking time. Just like the same time, Every time socialism is tried, if you keep ending up with a Stalin, you keep ending up with a Pol Pot, you end up with a Castro. Maybe the problem is the ideology. (laughs) And I'm sure every time nationalism was tried, somebody was like, oh, we'll stop things before it gets out of control and it'll be okay. But by the time things get out of control, you can't stop them. I mean, I'm sure somebody thought they can control Hitler right up to the point where he started gassing Jews. But then by the time he started gassing Jews, there was nobody to stop him. So if it goes, if, if the, if the experiment goes off the rails, every time you try the experiment, maybe stop trying the experiment and realize that this ideology has failed. This is not a good ideology. It keeps leading to a specific end. Maybe we should stop trying to do that. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but it's just it, it just struck me that there were just shades of that same argument that the DSA crowd makes and, and the socialists make that, oh, well, this time it'll be good because we'll, we'll do it better because we're better or smarter or more well-prepared or more something or another than the, I don't know, six or seven other times it was tried in the past and failed horribly. And I highly doubt that Lowry would be okay or just kind of nod and smile along. If it were a socialist standing in front of him making that argument, he'd probably just make the same argument I made, which begs the question of cognitive dissonance because you guys sound an awful lot alike right now. But moving on, Lowry asserts that nationalism is the natural order of things, that it's just natural that people should feel a certain way about their country and feel a certain kinship towards the land and the people. And he cites examples in Europe, which seem to not 
be very good examples to me because first off, European countries, or at least up until relatively modern times, tended to be ethnostates. America has never been an ethnostate. So people tend to point to countries like Sweden, like Finland, like Iceland, where you do have a lot of homogeny and they look at them and say, oh, well, look at this. This works here. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, especially even in the case of Iceland, there's an app to make sure that you're not actually related to somebody before you start dating them. So America has never been that. We've never had that by design. So this idea that everybody in the country who was born here should feel some kind of kinship with everybody else who was born here just doesn't make any sense to me. And also, it just seems like you're making kind of an imposition on me and everybody else and that you're telling me that because you and I were born in the same country that I should feel more sympathetic towards you, should feel more kinship towards you than somebody who moves here. Like, I don't know. I, I, that's that's a kind of tribalism that just, oh my God, that goes to some ugly, ugly places every time it's tried, especially even now. Like you have in India right now, you have Modi trying to get rid of all the Muslims under the guise of this sort of solidarity that all Indians need to be in solidarity with each other. All Hindus need to be in solidarity with each other and that you need to get rid of the non-Hindus. Like, it just, it, it always goes ugly, ugly places. And I don't understand I, how how anybody can make the argument right now that it doesn't when it's happening right now. It's not like something that happened in the past. Like, there's examples you can look at today of this idea that you need to value your fellow citizens more so than people who are either not citizens or were born somewhere else who are not native born. Like it just, oh no. Mm -mm. And so this is also the first time in the book and Lowry does come back to this point about the language argument that English is the thing that ties the country together and that everybody born in America speaks English. So therefore there's the thing. Um, America doesn't have an official language. There was not one made at the founding. There's never been one since. It's been floated. It's been shot down every time it's ever happened. There's a reason for that. We do not have an official language. And so, yeah, you can say the majority of people who are born here speak English. Okay. Sweet. Like, what? <laughs> I, I'm just, I don't, I, That that's supposed to be the thing that makes me feel a certain way towards you is that we speak the same language. Like, I, I don't, there's so much of this that I'm, again, I try to engage this stuff in good faith. I really do. But it's like, that's such, to me, a superficial way of looking at things that I think is kind of code speak for wanting to say something a little deeper, but not actually wanting to say it. So you're going to say, oh, we all share a same language. Like, okay, I, what, I don't, okay, so what about people that learn English? Like, what, I don't, I, huh? It's just, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still side-eyeing a lot of arguments that nationalists make, including Lowry in this book, and also writ large, that I'm wondering if there are things that they're wanting to say, but they either don't want to say them out loud, or I, I don't know. It just, there's, there's a lot of things that just kind of, kind of sit weird with me, with the way they kind of reference things and the things that they touch on that it's like, almost like you're wanting to make a specific point, but you don't really want to go full tilt and make the point that you're trying to make. But from there, Lowry cycles back to an idea that he had put forth a little earlier. And that is kind of also going back to this idea of, well, nationalism will work right this time because we are better than the other people who tried it. And that is that nationalism never failed. Human nature failed. <sighs> okay. I've got bad news for nationalists and socialists. Um, if your ideology depends on men being angels, it is going to fail every fucking time. 
because men aren't angels. I mean, if that's what you're waiting on, is that you're going to find that one magical person who's going to take your ideology and implement it in the way that you think it should be implemented and not not too much, not too little, just right. You're going to be Goldilocks. You're going to finally find the right bed and the right bowl of porridge and everything's going to be great. It, that, that never happens. It never happens. It never has happened. It never will happen because power corrupts. And nationalism, much like socialism, places a lot of power at the top of the power structure. And I mean, it goes authoritarian every time. I mean, it's it's almost, almost like I don't understand how anybody can look at what nationalism seeks to accomplish. I think, again, this is still very like nebulous to me. I'm not entirely sure. But to look at what that's supposed to achieve and also what socialism is supposed to achieve and not see that it is going to go authoritarianism every time, I don't, I don't understand you. Like, how can it not? You're placing massive amounts of power in the hands of a very few people. Yeah, shit's going to go bad. I mean, unless you plan on God himself coming down from heaven and running things, like, you're going to get humans. And humans are what we are. I mean, what are you going to do? Perfect human nature and then find that one magical person? But this argument is kind of crafted to also try to separate out nationalism from like fascism and Nazism, because that's obviously a thing that gets brought up every time is that obviously Nazism was nationalism. Fascism had very nationalistic bent to it. And it obviously went some ugly places. So it's just that idea that, well, we're going to do it right this time. We'll find the right person. We'll get, we'll just get the right people in there and everything's going to be great this time. Unlike the dozen other times where we didn't do that and it failed horribly. But there's also a little bit at the end of this little segment that, again, touches on fascism and Nazism in that Lowry makes the argument that nationalism is not inherently racist because racism existed before nationalism. Um, Who said it didn't? It's, it's a total straw man argument. Nobody ever said that racism originated from nationalism. Yes, racism existed before nationalism. The point is, when we bring this up, is that we are pointing out that nationalism allows for and enables very ugly kinds of racism. It just does. It does every time. And I don't, like, you can't hand wave that away. Like, you can even see it in the nationalist movement now, where you have people using the idea of blood and soil and nationalist pride and all of what the fuck ever they're saying this week to argue that certain people shouldn't be here and that certain people need to go back to wherever they came from or blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Nationalism enables racism. I, <laughs> and, and trying to straw man it away by saying, well... Racism existed before nationalism. Like, well, no shit, Sherlock. It's just, it's, uh, some of these arguments are just damn ridiculous. Just absolutely damn ridiculous. And it's an argument that nobody made. Nobody ever said that. But moving on, um, this is probably, well, maybe not the most controversial part of the book, but probably a pretty controversial part of the book. Um, Lowry spends a chapter using Israel as an example of nationalism. Okay, so obviously Israel is a rather controversial topic. Um, I, I mean, you could have very easily made this chapter using, say, Switzerland as an example, but he used Israel. Loaded topic, a little beyond the scope of a book review on nationalism, but it just, it struck me that he used that. And in thinking back on it and kind of going over my notes for this, 
um, there are shades in this book about how much like Israel is founded by Jews, which are supposed to be God's chosen people. Um, there's an argument made for Manifest Destiny in particular, but also several allusions to the idea that Americans were God's chosen people who were brought here to this continent to settle this particular landmass that we have settled and that we somehow have divine right in some of the same way that Israelis feel like they have a divine right to Israel. Ooh. Ooh, that is... Ooh. That's a take that you can make. That is an argument, I suppose. Not the one I would have made, but there it is. So kind of drawing that parallel between Israel and the United States. Yeah. Um... I mean, I guess it's no secret that the right wing obviously supports Israel massively. I mean, that's nothing new to talk about. But like I said, I just, I would have used a different example that wasn't quite so emotionally loaded to make my point about the idea of a nation being defined by borders and by rule of law. We could have picked a different example. Just saying. But moving on from that to another controversial part of this book, and that is the next chapter is a chapter about England, which why the fuck are we talking about England in this book? I don't know, but there's a whole chapter on English exceptionalism. Um, There's a lot in this book that could have been cut, <laughs> and this chapter could have been one of them, but there was something in this chapter, and I believe... I alluded to this when I was talking about my Vermeil piece, and that is how nationalists like to interpret historical events. And in this chapter, Lowry makes the claim that the English Reformation happened because of wanting to establish a English identity separate from Rome and the Vatican. Okay. I will give you a brief rundown of the English Reformation. I promise there is a point to this. Stay with me. Um, English Reformation happened. Basically, Henry VIII, and there, there's a whole lot of backstory here. There's a whole lot of theological backstory. There's a whole lot of political backstory that I'm going to leave aside. But essentially what happened is Henry VIII decided that he was going to break with the Vatican and establish the Church of England and appoint himself the supreme leader of the Church of England. Now, the reason why he did this is because he was seeking an annulment from his first marriage from Catherine of Aragon. So the marriage produced no male heirs. He wanted a male heir, tried to come up with various sort of biblical reasons why the Pope should give him an annulment. Pope Pope ultimately said no for various sorts of theological and also political reasons because Catherine of Aragon was not just some basic nobody. Um, <laughs> she was technically a princess in Spain, um, daughter of Isabel and Ferdinand, um, aunt to Charles V, not some nobody. And obviously Spain was a very powerful country then. And there was, there was a lot going on there. But anyway... Pope ultimately says, no, I'm not giving you an annulment. And what Henry VIII wanted was to annul his first marriage and marry Anne Boleyn. And so through various sorts of machinations, again, there's, there's a lot of backstory here. Um, people had put in his head that, you know what? If you decided to break with the Vatican and establish the Church of England and name yourself the supreme head of the Church of England, then you can just give yourself an annulment, and then you can marry Anne Boleyn. And that's ultimately what happened. So Church of England established, Henry VIII, supreme leader, Henry VIII announces his first marriage annulled, marries Anne Boleyn, and actually beheads her less than three years later. Anyway, the point that I'm telling you all of that is so that you understand this 
idea that at no point has anybody ever put forth the idea that the Church of England was established to establish a English identity. And this and this one stuck out to me because the the reign of Henry VIII and his six wives are something I'm kind of nerdy about. Like, it's just a really fascinating story. But it has been universally accepted why the English Reformation happened. That it happened because Henry VIII wanted to annul his first marriage and marry Anne Boleyn. Like, anybody who studies this stuff knows that. Like, it's not in question. And so, it's one of these examples. And I struggle with what to call it. Like, revisionist history isn't quite right because this isn't a retelling of events so much as making an assertion about a historical event that has no basis in any other kind of study of the event. Like, nobody's ever said that the Church of England was established for any other reason. So it's this thing that I notice that nationalists do when they're telling these sorts of history stories. And it's, I'm, like I said, I don't know if I want to call it revisionist because it's more than that, but I don't want to call it a lie either because, I mean, that seems kind of harsh, but maybe that's kind of fair to call it a lie. Maybe we need a word somewhere in the middle. I'm not sure, but it it strikes me that the reason why nationalists feel like they can kind of retell certain events in a way that is not factually accurate or has no kind of grounding in any other kind of scholarship on the topic is that they assume that their reader or their listener or whatever does not have the sophistication to know that what they are saying is not true. That's kind of a shitty way to look at your audience. And it it, it just assumes a certain lack of sophistication that you can say something like that and that nobody's going to call you out on it. That nobody reading this that agrees with you is going to be like, well, no, that's not correct. That's not what happened. That's not how it happened. That's not why it happened. And it seems, and again, I I try to be as charitable as possible here. I really, really do. But it does seem like nationalists seem to assume a certain lack of awareness or education on the behalf of their adherents in that you can just say shit like that and be fairly confident that nobody's going to call you out on your bullshit. Like that's, I, oh, that's, I, you know, (laughs) it, it doesn't speak well to you as an author or uh, anyone who writes, anyone who creates content to assume that your audience is dumber than you. And like, I didn't just explain the English Reformation to you because I think you're dumber than I am. I explained it because unless you know about the English Reformation, you're not going to understand the point that I was trying to make. Basically, I did it to fill in backstory, not because I think you're an idiot. So... (laughs) And again, I I would automatically assume that anything that I say or anything that I write, anybody who's consuming my content is going to go fact check me. Like that's just, that should be a, a fairly logical assumption of anybody who creates content. But that doesn't seem to be something that nationalists seem to think will happen. Because I, I remember there were some points in the Vermeil piece too, where I was just like, that's not even like, no, like, where the fuck did you even get this idea? Like, that's not what happened. That's not how it happened. Like, who who told you this? Like, where did you get this idea? And why are you spouting it? Like, it's just, uh, it's it's a really just, it's, it's a weird thing that I'm starting to notice more and more coming out of the nationalist camp. And I just, it, it's, when, when you get caught putting forth some bullshit like that, it, it doesn't really help you make your case to people who don't already agree with you and are smart enough or savvy enough to know when what you're saying is a load of shit. 
Like, if you get caught lying about something stupid like that, like, why... Why would anybody continue to listen to anything else more significant that you have to say? Like, it's just, it's just stupid little things like that that just discredit your whole argument. And it's just, it's weird. And I keep seeing it. And it just, I don't know, it bothers me. Another example of this from the book is Lowry's very interesting interpretation of why the American Revolution happened. He puts forth that the revolution happened because Americans were basically starting to feel themselves. Like we were all of a sudden starting to realize we were this great nation that needed to break away and be our own great, wonderful, proud American nation. And okay, maybe, but it's pretty well established that the American Revolution was fought over taxation and property rights and self-governance. Like, we all learned that. Like, remember no taxation without representation? Remember the agitation for private property rights? (laughs) Like, again, where, where did you get this idea and why are you spouting it? And why are you assuming that the people reading your material don't understand why the American Revolution happened? Like, I I know we don't really teach that in school so much anymore, but I thought just through osmosis at this point that people understand why the American Revolution happened. Like, remember the taxation and we put all the tea in the harbor and then, you know, we we did the Declaration of Independence about self-governance and people had problems with their private property rights, like... I, again, it's one of those little things where you throw out some nonsense that is easily disproven for no reason. And it just, it, it discredits your whole damn argument. And it's not to say that the people who fought in the Revolutionary War didn't think America was great. I'm sure they did. I mean, clearly they thought enough of it to go fight and die for it. But That's not the whole reason why it happened. It's probably not even the principal reason why it happened. In fact, the Revolutionary War, if you go back and actually read history, was not all that super popular, to be completely honest. I mean, it it had minority support. I mean, and luckily we were successful because, my God, things would have ended very badly for a lot of people if we weren't. But yeah, it wasn't some great groundswell of like, this feeling of American pride and greatness that you know, we have to break away from England because King George is just treating us like crap and we're done with it. Like, that's not, that's, that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. But again, it's another one of those little examples of, of twisting history to try to make a point that it just, the, the facts just don't support it. They just, I, I, yeah, I guess just, it's weird. It's weird. And it just, like I said, it assumes a certain lack of sophistication on the behalf of your reader for to put something out there like that and not assume that the person reading it is going to call bullshit. It's just, it's weird. I don't get it. But moving on, because we do still have a lot to talk about. Um, the continental spread. Again, going back to that idea of manifest destiny, um, a lot of shades, like I said, when we were discussing the, the comparison to Israel, of the idea that we were God's chosen people and that manifest destiny was our God-given duty to do. And <laughs> the, the reason I, I stuck on this one is, of course, you can't discuss manifest destiny without discussing Native Americans and what happened to Native Americans due to our insatiable drive to go from East Coast to West Coast. Um, (laughs) Lowry kind of hand waves away that one too and makes the argument that Native Americans kind of deserved what happened to them. First off, yikes. Second off, it's particularly rich to me from somebody who is making the argument that American culture is under attack by invaders and that we must do the things to protect our culture and our land and our people and then turn around and wonder why the hell Native Americans fought settlers. Um, I don't know, dude. Maybe it's because 
they thought that they were being invaded by foreigners who were threatening their culture and their lands and their people. Does it fucking sound familiar at all to you, dude? Like, does their plight not ring anywhere true in your head as to what you're saying? And, and they actually had a valid point, the Native Americans, because that was happening to them. Like, I just, oh my God, the cognitive dissonance to say, well, they, they were a bunch of savages and they shouldn't have fought back. Like, well, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't either then. How about that? Maybe you should just sit back and let whoever the hell you think's invading the country invade the country. Okay? No. Apparently, that's not an argument that you want to make for yourself, but you want to make it on behalf of Native Americans. Damn it, dude. Really? Really? Anyway. Oh, my God. Let's move on, because let's let's skip forward a little bit, because some of this stuff, okay. We can talk about the Civil War. Apparently, that settled the case of national unity. <coughs> no, it didn't. Um, as, as we can currently see right now, no, it didn't. I don't think it ever really did in anything other than a superficial way. But let's get to the end of the book, because this is where we finally start kind of talking about anything approaching policy or ideas or plans or whatever that might actually be implemented into practice at some point in the future. Anyway, of course, this section would not be complete without a chapter on the elites and how the elites are failing us. And he goes in on academia, but specifically historians for no longer spinning American history in the right way. I would just like to say right now, a historian's job is to tell history. That's it. If you are spinning history to aggrandize America, you're a propagandist. If you're spinning history to denigrate America, you're a propagandist. You're not a historian. Straight up. I don't care if you approve of the way or disapprove of the way the history is being spun to make whatever your particular point is. That's not history. That's propaganda. And Lowry's mad that historians aren't being propagandists for America anymore. Fuck you, dude. Seriously, fuck you. For so long, so many people's stories went untold in this country because historians did that shit. And now you want to be mad that people's stories are being told. And admittedly, there are people who are swinging shit way too far to the other end of the pendulum. But you don't get to tell black people or Native American people or women or any other class of people in this country that, you know what? Your story doesn't matter. The only story that matters is making sure that everybody knows America is great and wonderful and fine. And if your story doesn't fit into that narrative, your story doesn't count. Fuck off with that shit. No, that's not okay. And the the whole, the whole elites versus common people thing, all it is, is it's class warfare. It's just class warfare with different names. Like, you're no different than Marx going on about the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. It's the same thing. It's the same fucking thing. So what? I, I mean, is the right wing going to start admitting to their Marxism at some point in the future? I mean, they're getting pretty close. I will give them that. They are getting close to admitting their Marxism. As I pointed out when I talked about the Vermeule piece, he's pretty much straight up advocating for communism, Vermeule is. This kind of class warfare, it's Marxism. That's all it is. It's like, you're not, you're not doing anything new here, dude. I mean, this is something that's been going on for decades. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know why anybody thinks this is new or special or unique or edgy or anything. Honestly, all it is, is another example of political horseshoe theory where you have both the far right and the far left engaging in this class struggle. It's just depending on which side of the horseshoe you're on is who you identify as the elites versus the normal people. And that's it. It's the same thing. No different. I mean, 
the right identifies the elites as academia. The left identifies the elites as corporations. <laughs> the same shit. Like, oh my God, do you people not realize you're the same people? Anyway, let's move on to immigration. The one area where nationalists seem to actually have policy positions that I've been able to discern. So, obviously, um, the the uglier forms of anti-immigration inherent in nationalism once again get glossed over, of course, because, I mean, you know, if you have a movement and you're not willing to engage in the fact that Within your movement, there are some very ugly strains that need to be weeded out. I'm wondering how serious you really are about your movement. Anyway, he makes the argument that it's not that nationalists are against immigration. It's just that they want high-skilled immigrants. Okay. The obvious argument about this is if you feel like immigrants are taking jobs away from native-born people... Why in God's name would you want immigrants taking away high-skilled jobs from native-born people? Like, you would think that if that's your argument, you would want low-skilled immigrants to come in and take those low-skilled jobs so that native-born people don't have to do them, which is what happens now. I mean, and there's, there's a lot wrong with that system. Don't get me wrong, but that's basically what we have now. And then you also do have high-skilled immigrants that come in through various sort of visa programs, which... That's a whole nother ball of wax, too. That's kind of beyond the scope of this. I've discussed it before. I will probably discuss it again in the future. But it's that argument that, well, why would you want high-skilled immigrants? Like, that's going to even more disproportionately affect native-born people, to which the answer always is, well, we just need to limit the amount of high-skilled immigrants that come in. Okay, so what you're saying is, you don't want low-skilled immigrants you only want a tiny amount of high-skilled immigrants. You really don't want immigration. Like, just say you don't want immigration. I would have more respect for people who just got there off the rip instead of having to be, like, led down this road to admitting that you just don't want immigration. And, again, I keep saying this, I try to take these arguments in good faith, especially immigration arguments. I really do. But I'm starting to get the feeling that high-skilled immigrant is another one of those kind of code phrases for immigrants from certain countries and not from other countries, if you get my drift. So it's just, I, I would, I respect people a lot more if you just say what you mean. And nationalists, by and large, do not support immigration. I mean, you just don't. Like, you can pay lip service to wanting high-skilled immigrants, but really, you don't really want them either. Because then it's like, oh, well, we need to put caps on the visas, and we can only let so many people in, and then we only want people, this many people from this country, and this many people from that country. It's like, just say you don't want immigration. Just say it. Or just say, you know what? I don't want immigration from certain countries. I I would respect that more. I'm not going to agree with it, but I would respect it. And then... Lowry goes on to make the argument that, well, you know, immigration numbers have fluctuated over the decades. It's like, no shit, Sherlock. Anybody who knows the history of immigration knows that, obviously, back in the teens and 20s, immigration was much higher. And then, of course, leading up to World War I, you had people trying to escape that situation. And then eventually, immigration went down because we started putting quotas. We started putting caps on immigration and how many people could come from each country, which that got lifted in the 60s. And then immigration went up. Like, you're not, what, what argument are you making here, dude? Like, yes, everybody knows that. That's nothing new. So another point that he makes is that, and, and he kind of just kind of navel gazes his way through this was like, oh, well, I mean, there's nobody's ever proven any evidence that immigrants are a net positive eco economically. So I was like, really, dude? Again, not to go beyond the scope of this particular book review, but if you would like to hear more on this topic, go and listen to my interview with Brian Kaplan. Um, might have touched on it with my interview with Alex Narasta, too, but don't quote me on that. But definitely my interview with Brian Kaplan. Or if you want extra reading material, read Brian Kaplan's book on open borders, where there is a whole section about 
how and why immigrants are a net positive economically to America with numbers and everything. Like, this isn't something that people haven't studied, dude. It's been studied. The numbers have been crunched. Like, it's... it's <laughs> Again, why lie about things that people can easily call you on your bullshit on? It makes no sense to me. He then goes on to point out that the composure of immigrants now are different than what it was back in the early teens and 20s, back in, you know, 1910, 1920, 1930. And that's another no shit Sherlock. Um, obviously, in in the early part of the 1900s, the people coming here were basically from various parts of Europe. Like, obviously, you had English people, you had Irish people, Italians, you had Polish people, Greek people. Um, you had people coming from, like, not necessarily Middle East, but more, like, Russia, Slovenia, stuff like that. And now you have more people coming from Central and South America. Well, that would be because things in the 1910s and 20s kind of sucked in Europe. And now they don't suck so much anymore. You know where things do suck? Central and South America. So of course, when you understand why people want to immigrate to the United States, if you look at the patterns from the early 1910s, 1920s, of course, you had people coming to America for economic reasons because they just did not have opportunities in their own country. So they wanted to come here. And again, you see the same thing now with Central and South Americans with an added addition of needing to escape from situations that have become increasingly violent, where you have people coming from like the Northern Triangle from these countries where you do have a lot of cartel violence, where you do have gang violence. And so not only do you have the economic situation, you also have the personal safety situation, which leads to the asylum situation, which again is beyond the scope of what I want to talk about in this particular episode. But there's a whole lot of reasons why the the composition of immigration looks different now because of course it does like what 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 i mean people aren't coming here en masse from italy anymore because things and well current situation notwithstanding with coronavirus things in italy don't suck anymore they're not dirt poor like they were in 1910 and 1920 like this is not oh my god but here's here is Lowry's proposed solutions for the immigration situation. First off, everybody has to learn English, which I would assume would mean you'd have to go through Congress and get English appointed as the national language. Good luck with that. And intermarriage. Um, the idea that once immigrants come here and you start kind of like mingling with society, you marry Americans, then you assimilate. Um, do I need to point out that being overly worried about who people do and do not marry is creepy as fuck? I mean, obviously, assimilation and intermarriage happens. I mean, I don't think you know anybody. Like, is there anybody who doesn't know somebody who has both Irish and Italian heritage in them? Like, intermarriage happens all by itself. And I'm 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 not quite sure what Lowry is getting at here by saying that immigrants need to marry Americans because I thought that was considered a bad thing that immigrants would be marrying Americans in order to achieve legal status because obviously once you marry an American then you start to become eligible for a green card and then you become eligible for citizenship. I thought they didn't want that. I thought that was the bad thing. But apparently that's the good thing. So anyway, just a really weird discussion about being worried about people assimilating through marriage. I'm like, people can assimilate into American society without marrying an American. Like, it's entirely possible. Happens all the time. <laughs> even if you marry somebody, even if a Mexican marries another Mexican, like, you still can assimilate into American culture. It's fine, dude. Like, you don't have to be weird about who people are marrying. Um, but to finish up the book, we discussed the concept of cultural nationalism and I was like, okay, are we, am I finally going to get the explanation? 
Am I finally going to learn what what the American culture is? Um, yes and no. Um, according to Lowry, um, our our national identity, our national cultural unity and identity and what the hell ever is based on, first of all, the language and holidays and universally recognized symbols. What? Um, <laughs> I was expecting something a little more robust than that, because even if you want to make the argument that there are certain, like, certain holidays every American, like, practices. First off, no, there isn't. Second of all, like, he goes on this little rant about Thanksgiving. Um, not everybody celebrates Thanksgiving, obviously. And those people who do, do so in very different ways. There are people that view Thanksgiving as, like, a quasi-religious holiday where you give thanks to God for your blessings from the past year and ask for blessings in the year coming forward. Um, there are people that do it as just a family gathering. There are people that do it to get as far away from their family as humanly possible. Like, I like the concept of Friendsgiving. Like, I like when friends just, like, get together and have, like, their own Thanksgiving because either you can't or don't want to go to your family's Thanksgiving. But there's no one way to celebrate any particular holiday in the United States. And to me, I would think that if you're going to make the argument that holidays are a cultural touchstone, that you would have to argue that they are such because everybody does the same thing on the same day, which that doesn't happen. There's no holiday where that happens, like not even on the 4th of July. Like Some people don't really celebrate it at all. Some people use it as an excuse to like get drunk and blow shit up. Some people do it to actually like be like yay USA like there's there's no one way to do it that would be anything that would indicate any kind of national unity to me so I, I don't again I don't understand this argument I don't get it and then the book ends with the usual cultural war nonsense which I do not have the energy to discuss anymore at this point like I just the culture war stupid it's just stupid and dumb and just such such a distraction from more important issues, which, by the way, at no point in this book is there any mention of any kind of economic issues that could possibly affect the nation. You know, I guess we don't talk about that anymore. We we'll talk about we could talk about the debt. We could talk about you know foreign investments. We could talk about all kinds of like economic things, but I guess we don't talk about that anymore. I guess libertarians are the only people left to care about actual economic fiscal issues. So anyway, my question after I was done reading this book was who exactly was this book written for? Now, to me, if I was going to write a book and call it, say, The Case for Libertarianism, my goal in writing that book would be to try my best to convince people who don't already agree with me as to why they should agree with me and why they should at least give the ideas that I'm putting forth some serious thought, even if you end up don't agreeing with them, even if you only end up incorporating a couple of them, my 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 audience, I would think, that I was writing towards would be people who don't already agree with me. This book is preaching to the choir. I don't see how this book would particularly, like, cause anybody to give nationalism a second thought. I can see this confirming a lot of people's priors and giving people that kind of confirmation that, Yes, I'm right. And look, here's this book by Rich Lowry, and it says all the things that I agree with. And yeah, but to me, that shouldn't be the point of writing a book like this. I mean, it's it's fine to preach to people who already agree with you, but that's not going to expand your movement. You're not going to gain any new converts. So... I mean, I, I have no idea what the sales numbers are for this book, but I'm sure they're fine enough. I'm sure Lowry made 
a decent amount of money off of this, which kind of brings me to my next question of why is Rich Lowry doing this? If you don't know who Rich Lowry is, he is the editor of National Review. He has been so since 97. Um, I mean, you're already somebody who has status. Like, I can see somebody who is trying to get their come up writing this book to try to make their name. Lowry doesn't have to do that. He's already... I mean, he was the handpicked successor by Buckley to be the editor for National Review. You don't need to engage in this shit. So why are you? And in such a kind of intellectually lazy way, which I think that's really the thing that gets me the most about this book. And I know clearly I've mentioned it already in this in this episode, but it's just it's it's lazy. It's just lazy in assuming that nobody reading this is going to read it critically. And that to me is probably its its worst sin is that it just it doesn't try. Like you're not even really trying to convince people who don't already agree with you. And so therefore I don't understand the point. I, I don't get it. Like why why? Why does this book exist? Like I don't feel like I know really all that much more about nationalism as a movement. Um, <laughs> clearly some rather interesting, glaring errors in discussing history in here. Um, definitely some glossing over of issues that shouldn't be glossed over. Um, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't get it. So I, I don't feel like I know anything more now than I did before I started reading this book, but I read it. And now I did a review on it. And now you can read it if you want to. I go for it or not. Up to you. I'm not here to tell you what to do. But at this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up because this has definitely gone on long enough. So if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.